Hello and welcome into the KE Report. I'm your host, Shad Markwitz, and I'm speaking today with Eric Wetterling, also known as the Hedgeless Horseman, runs thehedgelesshorseman.com. And Eric, it's always great getting you on the show to get your thoughts on how you're looking at the resource sector and investing in particular in the juniors. We were just talking off mic just about some of the different videos uh, we've been watching, the different interviews, different conferences, and just some of the takeaways is that there's a big divorce between what smart money is doing and what retail money is doing. Let's maybe start there with some of the takeaways that you have just looking at and surveying the junior resource sector right now. I mean, I've been in this sector since 2015. And when I started buying, I thought it was really cheap. A bunch of the stocks were down 90% from their 2011-2012 highs. And I remember it's like most of the time I just bought whatever stock that simply was down I, I you know that's the amount of due diligence i did basically and looked at uh, you know beta like who's got most silver ounces and all of that and i remember at the time you know listening to a few of the more prominent investors like ross Beatty, pierre lasson and they're saying that hey this is the time to be buying this is really really cheap because it's gone down so much and you know this sector is going to turn around and you know lo and behold out of nowhere it started ramping in early 2016 and the portfolio went up from the bottom from being down 50% went up 500% or something like that and now if you look out there i mean i think this is given the dislocation between gold and the gold equities i think this is way bigger of a layup than 2015 because back then and i've talked about this a bunch of times the gold sector was crap because gold was at 1100 and they were reflecting that the sector was kind of worthless now it's reflecting that the sector is worthless even though gold is at two thousand dollars so it's like back then you had to have some let's say speculative balls to buy because at the time they were actually pretty worthless now they're not but they're still valued like it so now you have a speculative discount which is remarkable and i've never seen that in in the gold space and if you listen to these billionaires like rick rule McEwen, beating Gustra, and i watched a lot of interviews with them from you know the last few weeks it's like Gustra says this is the biggest dislocation between gold and gold equities he's seen in his career which is much longer than mine and all of these four guys are basically pounding the table on gold equities. And it's not that they're just talking about it. You can see, you see Gustra show up in private placements. You see McEwen all over the place recently. Beat is more of a, I guess, semi-retired, I was going to say. But he's saying he's actually getting into it because he can't help himself. And you have Rick Rule also saying that, you know, finally, after being out of the, let's say, gold junior sector for many years, he's getting into it, writing checks. And the interesting part is like you have these things lining up. You have the lowest valuations in perhaps decades. You have the biggest margin of safety relative to gold. And you have these billionaires that basically are pounding the table, spelling it out for anyone who can't see the obvious, let's say, and still the volumes are the lowest since 2003. You can be the only person in some stocks on any given day buying. I mean, it all makes sense why almost nobody makes any money in this sector, really, because when you have opportunities like this, when everything aligns, like valuations, people that, that are rich telling you what to do and nobody does it. Yeah, it is 
really wild how low the volume is in the entire sector. While we see some of the smart money, some of the more seasoned investors that have made money in prior cycles being table pounding bullish, it's similar to what we talked about last week with the uh, nickel companies and that all of the strategics are coming in, the large mining companies, the manufacturers, and yet retail is asleep there too. So in general, in the resource space, that's what you're seeing. Big money coming in, getting positioned, retail money, and even some institutional money just sitting on the sidelines or maybe holding on to losses that they bought at the wrong time, or possibly just keeping money on the sideline and not doing anything except complaining. So it's it's an interesting environment to be a contrarian, but let's filter it down into some companies, Eric, because I mean, really everything's on sale. So you can look at almost any stage of the mining sector and, and everything's at a good valuation, but are there any companies that you're seeing putting out news or doing something in the near term that you see as a catalyst? I mean, like you said, and, and Ross Bailey said, the sets, like everything is on sale. Get a basket of equities, you're probably going to be up a lot in you know one, two years. That's his words. So now it's really, really, really hard to be overpaying for something, which is, in my book, making a mistake because I don't see volatility as risk. Volatility is going to happen all the time. Volatility is what we use to make money. Or, I mean, most people get, you know, become victims of it. So it's very, very hard to be overpaying for anything that's decent to good. And, I mean, there, there's two stores that I find interesting. And there's a lot of stores I found interesting uh, across a bunch of metals. But Cabral Gold, they recently announced some holes from their project in Brazil. And it's like they had a highlight hole of 30 meters of 2.6 gram per ton gold in oxidized material from surface at Machichi. So okay, not only is that a good hole in itself, it's also in uh, oxidized materials like saprolite. And I mean, they've talked about this saprolite and I think it's the saprolite which got Osisco Gold royalties to invest in the company. And of course, as a royalty company, they're not penny flippers. They're not, you know, speculators in the sense that's like, oh, you know, maybe this, uh, you know, it can go up, whatever. It's like they bought a net smelter royalty. They get the payoff if it becomes a mine. So if you have royalty companies come in, especially the more, you know, seasoned ones, the largest ones, I mean, they're saying, hey, we think this is a mine. And uh, it can be, un- let's say it's not the sexiest thing for retail investors. But when you think about the fact that and they've talked about that the cutoff for these saprolite blankets might be as low as 0.13 grams per ton. You can only imagine the potential margins if you mine 2.3 gram material. I mean, this is probably some of the cheapest gold mining you will find on planet Earth, basically. And they have several of these blanket deposits. And and in my opinion, it's like that's not what you, why I bought into Cabral in the first place. It was for the hard rock exploration side. And they have uh, over a bit over one million ounces of that stuff. But like, I think this is actually the new, let's say, meat on the bones as evidence why Osisco Gold Royalties got in shortly after they started drilling this oxide deposit. because it, it So it has kind of turned. And I think it's not to appreciate by the market just how high margin this stuff could be. And of course, like always, we retail are mostly, let's say, tempted by, you know, how many millions of ounces do they have? And, and there could be mine or deposits out there with two, three million ounces, which is almost worthless. 
and there can be mines with just, let's say, or deposits with, let's say, 200,000 ounces or 100,000 ounces that actually could, could be more valuable than, you know, multi-million ounce deposits. Yeah, it's interesting, especially with heat bleach mining, if you find oxidized gold near surface, it does not have to be high grade like an underground mine, which a lot of, you know, Canadian investors look at and think, oh, well, two grams per ton gold, that's not very high. But when you're thinking heat bleach, like you say, it could be down to 0.13 or, you know, there's a lot of mines operating at a 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0.5 in Nevada that nobody would have gotten excited about for the grade. But it's really a question of is the deposit economic? Just a quick follow up on that. When you see a, a company like Cabral that has, let's just say, a million ounces defined elsewhere in the hard rock, uh, in the sulfide, and this is true of a lot of companies, that's why I'm asking this question, where they decide to go do something else and they start looking at another area that maybe could be sooner in a mine life or it could be yeah, a second project or it could be another area of the same project where there's a higher grade zone. And people start looking at that. So the new area is barely getting any value and the old area has been devalued to nothing. How do you look at it? Do you see it as something where eventually the optionality of both projects come back into the fold and people realize, oh my gosh, it's not just this one area, it's all the stuff they've already done? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point about the shareholders, the ones who bought it at time X. I mean, they have an idea why they bought it. Something got them interested. So when stories change, and you can see that in uh, different companies, that some, some make just a discovery, not another metal, which they didn't plan on doing. And all of a sudden, that gets the focus. So that might, you know, put off some of the previous investors, because that's not what they're all about. I mean, the, now I'm, you know, in, let's say Hercules Silver is like, oh, I, I was in for the silver and now it's a copper story. So I'm actually getting out because I don't understand copper. I don't know what they're doing. And I'm a bull on silver. I don't know anything about copper, whatever, whatever. So I, I mean, I, I'm not sure how this is going to play out. But sometimes, obviously, you can have a kind of opportunity there where it's like, it's a new thing, which Few people realize that it's like, hey, this is valuable. This is even more bang for the buck, even lower hanging fruit. And let's say that's kind of new and it looks unsexy. And then you have the previous shareholders who think, well, this is not why, why I got into it. I don't care about, you know, oxidized material or something. I wanted them to, you know, drill up a multi-million ounce gold system. So they might be, you know, selling shares, etc. So there, there's a bunch of stuff that happens in the market all the time simply from, uh, you know, preferences from investors that can lead to volatility and also opportunities. And it's like, I think this is, I think Cabral has a lot of load gold potential, but it's, in my opinion, pretty clear, especially when you see results like this. I mean, 50,000 ounces of this stuff could be worth 300,000 uh, of, you know, um, a typical fresh material, whatever. And this is easy to drill, easy to delineate. And like you said, I mean, it's probably a simple operation. I mean, it's kind of loose gravel at the surface that simply contains a lot, a lot of gold. So it makes perfect sense. But it's, I, I think it's, it's not the sexiest thing. Well, Eric, there's another company in Brazil that we were talking about off mic. I guess it kind of makes sense just to group them together here. Uh, there's actually been a lot of action in Brazil over the last year or two in a number of companies. But you'd mentioned another exploration stage company, Altamira, that put out some news that caught your attention. Maybe give us a quick look at what you're seeing with Altamira Gold. Yeah, so Altamira, it, it's somewhat similar in the sense that, I mean, they originally had 700,000 of sulfide material or, or fresh rocks, like uh, more conventional gold. And then they found 
a big soil anomaly and they drilled that. That was the Maria Bonita target. All of a sudden that became it's like, okay, this is obviously the new high priority goal target there. And they are drilling that right now. And the first hole, I think we talked about that. Uh, the first hole already went deeper than they planned and they announced the addition of a second rig. So we can assume that it looks good. And also the news they just put out was Altamira Gold reports 88% gold recovery from column leach tests on mineralized saprolite material from the Maria Bonita gold discovery. So they have, I mean, a similar thing as Cabral has. They have these blankets on top of the, you know, fresh resource let's say. And I mean, they're going the same way. I mean, they even say that the company intends to conduct further tests to optimize the leach dynamics and scope a potential fast track, low cost initial operation to mine the mineralized saprolite. I mean, the market didn't care almost at all. It was like, again, I don't think people understand how cheap this stuff can be. Or Cisco Gold Royalties obviously did, because that's what, what I think got him into Cabral. And I think these are just two cases of, let's say, somewhat misunderstood stories in bad sentiment, which have, I mean, I I don't know how much value these news releases are adding, but it sure as hell is not zero, but they haven't really revalued at all. It's not unique for these both stories, but I think that these guys might have some of the lower thresholds in terms of critical success, unlike, you know, I mean, one of my favorites like Snowline, where my thought was like, hey, they need to have like 8 million ounces of gold up there for it to be viable, given the lack of infrastructure. I think these guys, both companies could have a a mine worth a bit from just, I mean, a a few hundred thousands of ounces. And in, in Cabral's case, they have multiple deposits. And in Altamira's case, they might have, it looks like they could have a pretty big disseminated intrusion hosted gold system right underneath the saprolite. So I, I think they have these are the chairs on the top, which could be very, very low cost mines and, you know, relatively small deposit, but maybe a, quite a bit of cash flow. And then they could possibly get right into actually the the fresh rock. So I, I think this is great. I mean, think of the companies typically want to go for a starter pit, you know, the high margin stuff that pays it off quickly. I think both of these have a chance of not only having, you know, especially in Altamira's case, a pretty big disseminated mine, but both have, uh, you know, stuff at surface that can really superduce the economics. Well, Eric, we'll, we'll wrap it up there, but some good thoughts on both companies. And yeah, a lot of times people want those big companies. And we hear that from people that, you know, you want a big mine, you want scale because big mines, the surprises are to the upside, small mines, the surprises are the downside. But there's also the reality that a lot of mines that have been put in production are smaller mines. They can be quite profitable. They're easier to permit. They don't get nearly as much social pushback or environmental pushback because they're not giant disturbances. And a lot of times they start there, grow organically, and then build their portfolio of assets over time with the cash flows from the initial mines and the easier mines to put in production, the open pit heap leach mine. So definitely worth taking a look sometimes at companies that aren't going to be the giant tier one deposit, but could be nice economic deposits. And Always appreciate getting your thoughts, Eric. If people like getting Eric's thoughts, definitely click on the link below. It takes you over to the Headless Horseman, where you can follow along with his work and analysis. And like always, Eric, always looking forward to our next conversation. The same. Thanks for the call, Shad.